0: this is Jason. Do you want to be on Rattle and Pedal? We have a great audience and we think you should know one another. So come on Rattle and Pedal and share a success or a mistake. Visit rattleandpedal.com slash pure stories to learn more. Now, on with today's show.
1: You're listening to Rattle and Pedal, diversion thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Your hosts are Jason Malicki and Jeff McKay.
0: So Jeff, we have a a guest today and we are going to talk about good sale, bad sale. And before we start, I guess I want to ask what that means. Does that mean a good sale is when a client hires Rattleback and a bad sale is when a client hires Prudent (laughs) Pedal? Well, that's good client, bad client, smart client, smart client.
2: Oh, I'm not even, I'm not even going to touch that one. (laughs) I'm not going to touch that one. Yes, we're talking good sale, bad sale.
0: All right. Well, who's, who's with us? Introduce our guest.
2: Well, on the phone with us is one of my favorite people, Brian Caffarelli. And I'm going to let him introduce himself in just a second. But I'll say this about Brian. He is one of my favorite people. He represents the best of the professional services partners and leaders. He's smart, he's driven client-centric, but the thing that I like most about him, and he probably doesn't even know this, is his humility. And you'll hear that when he starts talking, as they say, still waters run deep. So
0: anyway, hey, Brian. Uh, hi, Jeff. And hi, Jason. How are you both? Super happy to have you here. I'm glad to have someone smart to talk to again.
3: <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that's a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, two-way street, (laughs) Okay, I'm
3: starting to perspire a little bit now.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So, Brian, you bring a lot of credibility. I know your credibility. Most of the people that know you know your credibility around sales and growth and the professional services world, because you are one of the highest ranking people at Hewitt Associates. But Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, the roles you've had in the past and how you've come to be on this call with
3: us today? Sure, Jeff. Thanks. I had the great pleasure of working at Hewitt Associates at a really interesting and exciting time in the history of the firm's evolution. I started there shortly after dirt was invented (laughs) and spent about 25 years there during an explosive period of growth for the firm that ultimately culminated in their initial public offering. And during that time, My role was either directly in sales, selling at that point in time, what was our benefits outsourcing services, or managing and leading the sales team that was focused on selling our benefit outsourcing services. That was my functional role. I also had the privilege of serving on the firm's executive committee while we were a partnership for roughly 12 years. And then after we became a public company, chaired our stockholders committee, which was also a great privilege. I'd, you know, Jeff, I'd probably be at whatever the current incarnation of Hewitt is today, even, except in 2007, the city of Chicago chose to bid for the 2016 Olympic Games. And I had the great honor of being part of the team that was trying to make a sale to bring the Olympics to Chicago. We did not succeed. And sort of in 2010, I thought, wow, I have to do something. And, you know, I always just really loved the science behind selling in a professional services environment. And I thought there might be a bit of a consulting business around that. And so I joined a firm called Strategic Talent Solutions. And today I work with professional services firms, partners and account executives on their sales and account management strategy.
0: I bet that story of of chasing the Olympics would be a podcast in and of itself. I bet that would be a really interesting one to talk about. I'd love to hear that story. (laughs) Uh, I'd love to tell you that, Jason. I don't know if I <laughs> want it recorded, but I'd love to share. It. That's funny. All right, so good sale, bad sale. So what? Oh, what do we mean by that? What? What is? What constitutes a good sale? What constitutes a bad sale? I mean, aren't all sales good? I mean, isn't any revenue good most of the time?
3: Great question, Jason. I'll just share my experiences or our experiences as we were growing up at Hewitt. You know, I, I really thought all of us could make sales. But there was such a thing as a bad sale, both a bad sale from a client's perspective and and really a bad sale from the firm's perspective. And I think bad sales are those sales where there is just misalignment within each organization, misalignment within the buyer's organization and misalignment in the seller's organization. At some level, there's just misalignment between those folks who may have made the purchase and those folks that have to implement the solution. And there's, that's on the buyer side. And on the seller side, there's misalignment between those folks who have maybe made the sale and those folks that have to actually successfully implement and manage the client on an ongoing basis. And I think when there's that misalignment, both in the buyer's environment and in the seller's environment, it yields a bad relationship. And that revenue really, that sale really isn't good. It just starts off a bad relationship that can be bad reputationally, it can be bad financially, it can be bad for the individuals involved in it. And in the end, it's the client you regret. So I do think there is such a thing as a bad sale. And I think it starts with misalignment.
2: How could that possibly happen? The way you just. It, oh come on! We're smart consultants, accountants, lawyers. There's no way that could possibly happen.
0: How- you know what's funny? Before you answer that, Brian, what, what's funny, Jeff, is uh-huh. my inclination was the exact opposite. Is that is that? Oh my God! Are do good sales ever happen? <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was what I thought as he was talking. I was like, my God, that happens all the time. So anyway. Well, you know, I don't know. I have a perspective on
3: this, and and, and I hope this doesn't come across as Pollyanna, but I do believe that it's the responsibility of the salesperson to help the buyer make a really strong, informed, and confident purchase. I don't know that it's the responsibility of the sales You know, secondarily, it's the responsibility of the salesperson to sell their service or their product. But I think if you start from the perspective that it's the responsibility of the salesperson to help the buyer make a strong, confident, informed purchase for their organization, you know, good things will happen. I think sometimes if that's not a priority, bad things can happen. By the same token, at least in the environment that I grew up in, you know, especially because we were growing so explosively, the organization said it was the responsibility of the seller to protect the firm. And part of the way that the seller protects the firm is to only bring in strong, aligned deals. Bring in strong aligned deals so they start from that perspective as opposed to bring in sort of a wobbly, misaligned, poorly crafted deal where we then have to rely on our implementation teams to correct the relationship over time. And so I think good sales happen when the seller, you know, I do think about this from a seller centric perspective, but when the seller believes that it's their responsibility to help the buyer make a confident, informed, well-thought-out, aligned purchase. And it's the seller's responsibility. The seller believes it's their responsibility to protect the firm from the bad deals and deliver a well-developed deal to the implementation team that takes it forward. So I think it has a lot to do with what the seller feels their responsibility is.
0: I have no follow-on question. It's so thoughtful. I'm curious, Brian, like the misalignment that you talk about that As you're talking, I think there's just examples popping up in my head left and right, both deals I've done or deals I've seen clients do. And where does misalignment tend to happen? Is it a misalignment of the solution against the problem, which could be by extension a misunderstanding of the problem, I suppose? Is it a misalignment of the cultures, meaning that the firm and its client are just not aligned culturally speaking in terms of how they should work together? What do you normally see there?
3: Jason, I I think that's a great question. I think it can be in any of those areas and more, by the way. I, I think we could expand our definition of where misalignment can come into play. And I think sometimes then it happens because people go too quickly. People jump too quickly. And don't take the time and the effort and the energy to say, you know, to your first point, is this the problem? Is this really the problem? If we fix this, will this yield the desired outcome you have? And to that point, I, I do think sometimes on the buyer side, buyers they can speak in the language of activities or requirements as opposed to the language of problems or outcomes. And if the seller just sells to the stated activity or requirement, misalignment can happen because that activity or requirement may not in fact, translate to the result or the outcome. So it's getting beneath the buyer's language. That's one area. You know, the other area, I think sometimes, to your point, is cultural. You know, at least the service that we sold was a service that would bind two organizations together contractually for a minimum of 5 years and it was a service that would have us interacting with their employees and their leadership teams almost on a daily basis. And you know, at some point in time you have to say can we all just step back and think through whether we can happily coexist and live together for 5 years? Do we think that can happen? Because if it can't happen every day we're going to be at each other's throat, we're going to hate each other and bad things are going to happen. So Let's play it forward and what's it like to live together? And then, you know, sometimes, you know, the sellers can be so eager for a deal, you know, they can take a deal that, you know, you'd say, hey, there's at least a 50% chance that we can deliver on this. Uh, How unfair is that? How unfair is that to the team or to the buyer? You know, you can only take those deals where you have a supreme amount of confidence that you can deliver on the buyer's outcomes and that you can do it in a way that protects Everybody within the firm protects and energizes and grows those folks in the firm. So I think those misalignments can happen in all sorts of different areas. I'm sure you guys have great, even better examples of this than I do.
2: You know what I, I love about that, Brian? It's And you and I, ha- we've had some conversations around sales culture or sales philosophy. And is there a difference between the two of those? But as you describe that, there really are kind of three levels in my mind that are precursors, if you will, to getting to good revenue. And it's that you need salespeople, sales philosophies, and overall firm cultures that are confident about the services that they offer and and what they do, their expertise, their ability to 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 deliver, if you will, they really need knowledge. They need business knowledge. They need expert tease, you know, and whatever given discipline is, they need to understand the entire organization, but they also need to understand the client really well. They need to be humble at all three of those levels as well. And I think, as I said in my introduction, this is one of the things that you do so well. You're willing to learn. You're willing to say, I don't know. I'm willing to figure it out with you instead of just dictate. And then finally they're patient. They're not just trying to close this the deal as quickly as they can and kind of move on. And I, I guess I would I would add a fifth. You know, they have foresight, right? They they think long term and they know repercussions of of actions, short term and, and long term. And if you don't have those, can you even get
3: to good revenue? I, I think that's a great list. And if I were to reflect back on sort of m- my career and the people who really taught me and the lessons and the hard knocks lessons that we learned, in many cases, first off, we had to learn, to, to your last point, I think we had to learn what a bad sale was and to live mm-hmm. through what a bad sale was. And, you know, at, at Hewitt, especially early on, we probably had, we we did have plenty of them. I don't think we purposefully tried to make bad sales, but we had plenty of them where it's like we got a client and then all of the sudden, for whatever reason, it was clear we could never make the client happy. We could never make the client happy. We could never operate our best and deliver at a level of quality that we could be proud of. Financials were destructive and everybody on that whoever got onto that client team wanted to leave that client team, whether by getting on another client team or leaving the firm. And, you know, and that client could never be a reference, you know, and if you, and because these were relatively big sales that involved lots of people, large teams and lots of money, you know, you really felt the pain of a bad sale and it made you incredibly introspective and made you sort of think through, how did we get here? What was my role in getting us to this position and how can I make sure I never put the firm and my colleagues and the client, and the future client in this position again. And so, you know, it really hit you in the face. And we had, I was fortunate enough to grow up under a number of really great leaders that I, you know, respect and admire so much. And one of them always said, and at the beginning of my career, I never understood this, but later on I did. He always said, we will never regret the client we didn't get as much as the client that we got, you know? And I was like, Mm. you yeah, what what do you that's the <laughs> silliest thing i ever heard is it
0: my job to get the
3: clients yeah. <laughs> but then you know in the end um. it, it was true you know there was a client that we yeah. swung and missed at and wow that was terrible and it hurt and i wish we got them but you know what there was another client and we got them but then there was that wrong client that we got that we brought into the fold And, you know, we were contractually obligated for the next five years and we were reputationally obligated for more than that and we could never get it right. And we had to live with that every day. So, you know, once you learn that lesson a couple of times, I wasn't smart enough to learn it once, (laughs) just to learn it once. I had to learn it a couple (laughs) of times, you know, then it brings about a new reality and a new way that you go about your business.
2: Yeah. Oh, I can just feel that. (sighs) I can feel it from the from the people side. I can feel it from the, the brand and reputational side. That That's just a, a bad, bad scenario.
1: You're listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on growing your professional services firm. Your hosts are Jason Malicki, principal of Rattleback, the marketing agency for professional services firms, and Jeff McKay, former CMO and founder of strategy consultancy Prudent Pedal. If you find this podcast helpful, please help us by telling a friend and rating us on iTunes. Thank you. Now back to Jason and Jeff.
2: When we were doing some prep work for this call, we talked about, well, what's the name of it? Is it good sale, bad sale, good revenue, bad revenue? And we ended up calling it in a good sale and for good reason, because as Jason just said, you know, isn't my job just supposed to get the sale? So most people think, I need revenue, so let's just get the revenue. But a good sale, in addition to profitability and revenue dollars, there are a lot of other things that go into a good sale. And a good sale actually might not be super profitable sometimes. Can you talk a little bit about the other components that build out? A good sale.
3: Sure. And, and I bet you both can add a lot to this list. But you know, first off, I think, you know, when we sort of thought about what do we gain from this client relationship, you know, obviously the money is great. I mean, the money is great. That's that's fantastic. But there are many other things that we gain. In some cases, it enhances our brand or our reputation. In many cases, it might help us enter or into a new market. It might help us develop or perfect or a particular service. It helps us develop our people. There are at least, you know, in the environment that I grew up in, our prospects, clients' prospects would probably move from company to company. And so if you helped somebody make a really strong buying decision for their company, when they moved somewhere else, They knew you just were an advisor who could help them make strong buying decisions again. And so they reached out to you again and again and again. So all of those things, I think, are valuable outcomes from a sale beyond just the revenue or margin that the sale yields.
0: Yeah. One interesting one to me that I saw early on in this call as, as a bit of a conflict, but, but I think as you just described it, it's not. This idea of confidence, you, you, you mentioned this, this idea that, well, we have 50% confidence that this is going to succeed and really should never take that sale. I would argue, based on what you just said, there are all kinds of instances where a firm might say, we only have 20% confidence this is going to succeed and that's still a good sale. And the only way it's a good sale, of course, is if you're fully candid about that with the client and say, look, what you're asking to do has never been done. We don't know if it's going to work. We think it's an interesting idea. We think there's merit to it but we need to go find out. It may fail. And that, but that's, to me, how how firms develop new markets, new products, new services, new ways of thinking. And this having that client at the front edge that's willing to make investments both in the firm and in sort of new ways of looking at the world that sparks new practices and those types of things. And did,
3: Jason, I, I agree with you so much on that. And let me just say, you know, I talked about the alignment within the buyer organization and within the seller organization and probably even more important, and I'm sorry I didn't bring this up then, is the alignment between the buyer and the seller organization. And so if it's 20%, conf- to your point, you know, if it's 20% confidence and buyer and seller are aligned on that, wow, this would be awesome. This would be great. It's never been done before. Let's now enter into the relationship that way. And let's begin to think about what we do along the way to continue to increase the odds of success and what expectations that we set with all the constituencies and how we set those expectations given where we are today. What are the interim checkpoints along the way? I mean, you know, then we can all deal with that because we're transparent and aligned. And I think that's, yeah. that's critical.
0: I also love your definition of selling. This it's really just, it's just helping, you know, it's, it's, you're helping the buyer make good decisions. And that, to me, that's, that's really one of the fundamental best insights in this whole podcast is if that's your definition of selling, then rushing a client to a poor decision would never happen because it's antithetical to helping. So I think that's really valuable insight for people.
3: Can I credit that appropriately? I happened to be at Hewitt at an interesting time when David Meister was working with our firm. And I don't know if people will remember that name, but he was the co-author of the book, The Trusted Advisor. And you know, I think we were strongly influenced throughout by his perspective on how professional services firms develop trust, and especially as it relates to the concept of Minimizing your self orientation and maximizing your client orientation in all of your interactions. So,
0: yeah, that's awesome. I think that the concept of sales is helping comes up all over the place, and and it's interesting to you know to root it back to Meister. I have one last question that I'd like to close on, if we could. And it's sort of a, a little bit of a, of, this is the right pivot. Jeff gave us the wrong pivot. We'll cut that <laughs> part out. My question is, okay, so if firms, if there's good sales and bad sales, presumably, you know, good sales and bad sales exist in every single firm all the time, right? There's There's always good sales happening. There's always bad sales happening. Your goal is to minimize the amount of bad ones you probably have. What are the things that firms just always get wrong? Like or you know or always get right. I mean, what are the things that sort of habitually block good sales from happening inside of professional services firms?
3: Well, you know, can I answer to the positive side? to yeah, the, to the positive that I think what yeah. what happens. Maybe that, that's the better way to do it. That makes it right. I'm always too negative. Okay, um, <laughs> because because I think Jeff hit on two of them that I thought were at least really important to us, and one is organizational confidence, and that's number one. And if the firm has strong organizational confidence, I think that helps in making a good sale. I think if you believe in your soul, in your heart as an organization, that you provide exceptional, outstanding services that yield tremendous outcomes for your client. then you can enter into the selling relationship from two perspectives. One is, I don't need to try to convince you of that. I just need to help you see it. And so that's number one. And number two is, I'm never going going to be starved for prospects because I know we're really, really good in an area where people really, really need help. So I'm never going to be starved for prospects. I can always find them because of the strength of our solution to what I know our real problem. And I'm so confident that the buyer will see our quality that I don't have to try to convince them of that. I just have to help them see it. And so I'm just sort of almost, I'm not pulling the buyer through the sales process. I'm gently guiding them through the sales process, not pulling them from ahead. I'm sort of guiding them from behind so that they make an informed purchase. So organizational confidence, I think, is key. I think the second part of that is patience. And you know, that becomes, patience becomes difficult, especially if you're trying to meet quarterly closes or those types of things where your focus is not on helping the buyer make a good decision, but helping ring a bell or get on the scoreboard before the 31st of the month. You know, that just Mm -hmm. blows it all. So I think organizational confidence and patience are key. And then I think the third thing is being very clear about who protects the organization. You know, it can be, hey, let's lob in a bad sale and let's let the service team try to make it right. We invest heavily in our services team, we'll lob in bad sales all the time, and we'll rely on the service team to make it right going forward. Well, that's tough. You know, why don't you protect it on the front end? And so... And making sure everybody is aligned that the seller's job is to protect the firm. You know, everybody, leadership on down, align that the seller's job protect the firm. You know, I think that that's an important aspect or element of this as, as well.
2: You cannot end on that one, Jason. We have to. You
0: cannot. You can't. No. Th- there's no. nothing when you to have say. somebody He's so emphatically good there, and you're going to ruin it by droning it on. When, when you have somebody of this caliber
2: on your podcast, you don't let them go to <laughs> Quickly. (laughs) So, Brian, you, you said something that is so important that I think almost all professional services firms wrestle with and ultimately who protects the firm, particularly when there's a big number associated with a deal. And it's the difference between somebody making partner or getting more shares or, you know, reputation or whatever. Partners are very, very good at rationalizing, you know, the benefits of, of said deal. How does an organization stop that bad sale from going through? Ultimately, who makes the call within the organization that this is not going to happen.
3: I'll just say, Jeff, I can only speak to personal experiences on this within our organization. And, you know, we became quite large, you know, for a professional services firm, quite large at the end of my career. There were always opportunity review sessions where the seller had to face the scrutiny of the leadership team. And, you know, they were smart, they were whip smart, they were super hard, and they really put us through the ringer on where the buyer was and what the buyer was about and where we were on each sale. And that leadership team, you know, made the no-go decision and we got credit as Sellers, for the honesty and transparency that we brought to those meetings, not for the fact that we could sort of trick somebody to say go, but for the fact that we could be extremely honest and transparent and forthright about where the buyer was in their purchase process and where we were in the sale and how this was likely to spin forward. And we'd probably have to go to those meetings a couple of times during the course of a large deal. That was the thumbs up, thumbs down. You know, we all had our own little nicknames for what those meetings were like, but they were like inquisitions. But in the end, it was the leadership of the firm that made the decision on whether we were well positioned for a great relationship. Not whether we should get a $5 million sale, a $5 million TCV, but whether we we were well-positioned for a five-year relationship. And if they came to the conclusion that we weren't well-positioned for a five-year relationship, it wasn't going to happen.
0: I'm curious because the notion of go-no-go comes up a lot in professional services firms. And I I think when I've heard it used most of the time, it's used to describe the likelihood of winning. And the go-no-go decision is predominantly about what is the likelihood that we will win this piece of business to determine whether or not we want to put more resources against it going forward? How much of the go-no-go should be about that? And how much of it should be about being the the guard at the door that doesn't let certain people into the nightclub?
3: Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question, Jason. And, and I will say this. And so it's interesting, you know, I never thought of it the way that you said it, but it's interesting. You made a, just a, a crystal clear, bright line contrast for me. The, Go no go hurdles that we had to face, that we had to face over time were all about whether or not this could be a highly successful five year, you know, we actually we wanted obviously to be more than five years, but the contract was five years. A highly successful five-year relationship for us and the client that we'd both be exceptionally proud of and happy about. That was the go-no-go. The go-no-go was never about do we put the resources against it in order to win. And I will say this, and I I hope this doesn't sound arrogant, because I think back in the time that I was at Hewitt Associates, we were often characterized as being arrogant. But, but, you know, we sort of felt like if we go for it, we can win. So that's not the issue. The issue is, what if we do? That's what our sort of go-no-go is about. What if we do?
0: It's interesting because in my head, I have this continuum again. And the continuum is, and all these things are interrelated, organizational confidence, patience, and the the go-no-go and how it's used. And my sense is, is that there's a lot of firms that sort of have low patience, low organizational confidence. And the go, no go is all about, you know, how likely are we to win? And then at the other end of the spectrum are firms with high organizational confidence, high levels of patience. And the go, no go is about who we're letting into the club. And every firm probably is aspiring to be on the right side of that continuum, but finds themselves somewhere in the middle or to the left more often than they'd like. And maybe the the, the challenge of good sale, bad sale is, is how do I keep moving my organization to the right progressively over time?
3: Yeah. And Jason, could I just say one other thing? It's like, it's who do I let into the club or, or the other way to think about it is what club do I join? You know, because oh, yeah. in many ways we are joining the
0: client. Yes. Club. Yeah. That's a really great way of looking. I guess who do I let into the club is, is, is truly arrogant. It's yeah. like, man, we're yeah. still good. Who's allowed in? And it's like, no, no, no. Who, who? What club do we want to be a part of? And let's make sure we're both in, the, in a club together that we both want to be in. Yeah. And that's not arrogant at all. So you're, you're right. No, that's, that's a really great distinction. I'll say this very powerful stuff. You definitely, at least for me, Got me really thinking differently about how I've thought about a very fundamental concept of professional services selling for years, which is the go/no go. And I think that's a really, really powerful one for all of our listeners. This was a great conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. And despite Jeff's, you know, dissent, I am going to shut us down <laughs> only because it's, we're we're we are we are well beyond our time mandate on this. And I want to be mindful of your time and our listeners' time. And just want to thank you for coming. It was this was really illuminating and, and really great, great podcast conversation.
3: Oh, well, thank you so much for inviting me. I really feel very privileged and honored and happy holidays to the both of you and, and
0: to anybody who listens to this. So thank you. And thanks again. Yeah. Thank you, Brian.
1: And thanks, Jeff, for making it happen. Thanks, Brian.